Hey everybody, welcome to episode one of The Digital Life, a show about our adventures in the world of design and technology. I'm your host, Dirk Niemeyer, recording from historic Arlington, Massachusetts. And with me today as co-host is John Follett. John, how's life treating you? Not too bad. I'm, my voice is recovering slowly after having a uh, cold for a week, so that was no fun. And, uh, well, I guess the downside is uh, I'm, a, I'm a Pats fan, and they didn't do too well on Sunday, so we'll be thinking about that one all week. But uh, other than that, doing pretty good. So since this is the first episode of The Digital Life, I want to talk to our listeners a little bit about it, because, John, you and I have been living and breathing it for a while now as we've prepared to do this. But um, the, really, The Digital Life, what we're doing with this show is, since found, since I founded, um, along with my original partner, Involution Studios back in 2004, I've had the real privilege to be inside of the biggest and best companies in technology, You know, companies like Facebook and Google. Customers of ours have included Apple, Microsoft, Oracle, Shutterfly, PayPal, Yahoo, uh, the list goes on and on. And it's been fascinating, uh, whether it's just companies that I've been involved with or actual customers, getting in there, meeting high-level executives, seeing what the, the corporate campuses are like, um, getting a feel for the vibe of those companies and the things that are going on behind the scenes. And then in the process, uh, we've been really focused in our business on software. But we've gotten really involved in, in hardware companies as well, and I've gotten some insight there. In terms of VCs, I, I've been inside uh, most, if not all, of the major VCs in, you know, on Sand Hill Road, the legendary Sand Hill Road in Palo Alto, California, as well as uh, investors in, in other parts of the world. So we really have this great 360 perspective into the digital industry, into all the different facets of, of what make this go. And so the purpose of the digital life is to take that insider's view that insider's perspective, because you know it's it's continuing. It's not just the things we've done in the past, but we continue to work with incredible companies, interesting people, getting into really the the bleeding edge of the industry, and take that reach, that scope, and and share it with everybody. And another one of the nice things that that has happened over these years is I've gotten to know really interesting people. Um, you know, some of the uh, some of the best known, but even beyond that, just really some of the smartest. Um, most passionate and, and fascinating individuals who are involved in the different nooks and crannies in and around the digital industry. And through this show, we're going to bring a lot of those folks to you, uh, bring, you know, have them come in either as individuals or in groups and talking about topics that are timely or timeless, um, but are, are somehow interesting and related to this digital life that I'm living that a lot of people are living today. But in you know some years in the future, we're all going to be living the digital life, the the products, the services, the spaces that we move through. It's all going to be wired up. We're going to be increasingly, um, we're going to be increasingly dependent on these technologies, and we're going to increasingly embrace them as part of the fit and fabric of our lives. And so the the purpose of the show is to you know we call it adventures in in design and technology, is to give you the really the industry insider's view into all of this stuff where it came from, where it's going, and, and help you um, help you share in our privilege of, of having been exposed to all of it. So that's that's kind of what, what we're, why we're doing this. What do you think, John? Well, I think that uh, essentially when, when you talk about the digital life, the, the first thing I think of is, is software, of course, which, which you touched on. But I also think about uh, things like the gaming industry. I think about things like... Um, uh, entertainment, and and I think we'll probably touch on some of those topics as well, uh, in addition to the areas that we're so familiar with. Um, so I 
I think, you know, stay tuned. This is going to be a, a fun ride to come on. I, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Okay, well, let's talk about today's show. Our main segment today is going to be a bull session. And a bull session is a conversation with a group of guests where they talk about a particular topic. And this week, we're going to have them talk about information visualization. So going to talk about it from their own expertise, but also talking about general matters that they all have in common. We've got a great group assembled to talk about InfoViz today. First, we've got Brian Stotts. Brian's a designer and engineer with a background in bioinformatics. We also have Irene Ross, an engineer working at the Collaborative User Experience Research Group at IBM. And also Michael Dila, a trained philosopher whose career path has led him to be, at this point, the CEO of VizThink, a global community for visual thinkers and communicators. I think it looks like a great group, John. Yeah, I agree. Um, all of these uh, individuals are doing great work in, in each of their areas, and I really admire uh, some of the stuff that, that Irene has uh, has put together, as well as uh, uh, what Brian's been up to. So. So I think as as we uh, listen to their insights in and around information visualization, I, I think they have a lot of great stories and, and work to share. Um, it's uh, it, it will be interesting for our, our, our listeners to be able to uh, pick up on, on some of the uh, websites and the, the people and places that they mentioned so, uh, you know, they can investigate for themselves. But um, I, I'm really looking forward to this session. You know, I've always had a soft spot, soft spot in my heart for InfoViz because back in the days when I was designing, and that's getting to be a while ago now, uh, what I most enjoyed, but also what I was best at, was information design. And InfoViz, you know, being one of the, you know, perhaps the most um, notable manifestation of information design, um, it's also really the most be beautiful and elegant. And, you know, in, in my career, I had the privilege to meet people like Edward Tufte, Richard Saul Werman. I spent some time on the board of the International Institute for Information Design, and I met some incredible people who, um, while they might be not as well known as, as those pillars, are, are real leaders of the field, people like Paul Meixenar. Um, people like David Sless, Eric Speakerman, of course, the the great font designer. Um, but it's 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 a fascinating area and uh, some really great, important, um, capable people have have come and produced some wonderful things. And exploring that and sharing that is something that um, is is really close to my heart. So I'm I'm definitely looking forward to this. Yeah, I think uh, you know as as data becomes. Uh, so much more a dominant force in our in in our day to day lives. Uh, the importance of being able to visualize that data uh, becomes uh, sort of uh, brings it to the forefront. becomes more important in our uh, um, in our existence. How how do we deal with uh, the massive amounts of of information that we have to take in every day, um, or even just the amount of information that's being generated? Um, on a daily basis by a uh, variety of industries from uh, the financial services industry to uh, pharmaceuticals, you name it. Um, there's data just being generated left and right. So this, this really is an important topic to explore. It, it's fascinating that it's, on one hand, it's a timely topic um, because it is becoming more and more um, important and even necessary, but um, it's it's also nothing new. I mean, it was back in 1989 that that Werman published Information Anxiety. I mean, incredibly, that's over 20 years ago now. Yeah, that's. Um, I, I think that's more of a testament to his ability to uh, see see forward rather than uh, 
uh, reflection on sort of the timeliness of uh, uh, of this topic because I, I do think that as as you pointed out that the digital life is is um, uh, not everybody is is living that but more and more people are uh, becoming digital uh, in their their day-to-day -day living and I think that the necessity of information visualization becomes stronger uh, as more and more people take to uh, the digital life so 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 I, I think it is it is exceptionally timely topic and I, I know that uh, information anxiety is is a classic but it's um, it's more uh, more uh, prescient than uh, um, anything else I think that's a really good point but I think we're, we're loading up for a really good bull session but before that we'll have it's news to me and that's the only segment that will appear on every show uh, it's a segment that's going to focus on recent happenings or upcoming events relevant to the bleeding edge of what's going on in digital. Uh, you know, and there'll be some th themes that we talk about as well. We'll probably talk pretty regularly about what's happening with the big three of personal computing, and that would be Apple, Google, and Microsoft. We'll also follow the smartphone wars. That's some of the more active and interesting stuff that's happening right now is on the mobile platform, and particularly what's happening with the hardware devices and how those are really pushing the edge of the envelope in in conjunction with the software um, and also talk about what's happening in conferences publications with other companies it, it's going to be a pretty jam-packed segment yeah i agree it's going to be news and analysis so i think i think there will be uh, um, a lot of good uh, information bits as well as a lot of things to think about that will come out of this segment as well well let's see how we start off with it and head over to our first ever it's news to me Today is Tuesday, September 21st, 2010. Here's It's News to Me. Let's start with enterprise computing. Oracle's Open World Conference kicked off over the weekend with the company touting cloud in a box. Oracle's long shown a disdain for the cloud movement, bristling that they've been doing the same thing with different language for a long time. Well, they've apparently decided the gold rush is too great to not jump on board. Early returns aren't terribly exciting. Ultimately, there's no real sizzle in having your software behave and seemingly be architected the same way in the cloud as it always was on your servers. The trick, of course, is the huge IT savings a company can enjoy by moving to the cloud, offset by losing the seeming control they had when the software, files, and databases resided on servers they owned, saw, touched, and felt. Still, Oracle, from a business perspective, tend to get most things right, so expect cloud in a box to be a hit. Speaking of cloud computing, that technology is facing challenges in the European Union, which has greater regulations and requirements around privacy and data security than the United States. Google just announced that they are adding a second step to the verification process for their apps explicitly to comply with European regulations. For those of you, like me, here in the United States and concerned about the lack of security around your data, we may be looking to Europe to lead the way on policy and legislation. That's no surprise, as the old world has been well ahead of us in many policy issues over the last couple decades. If you're not up on the security risks our personal data and online activity face, go to www.goinvo.com, hit the Intel section, and read the article, Plugging In Means Exposing Yourself. 
Yesterday, former Hewlett Packard CEO Mark Hurd reached a settlement with HP over their objection to his joining Oracle as co-president, citing his ability to divulge trade secrets. Hurd waived his right to 340,000 shares of HP stock, worth at least $15.3 million, to make the lawsuit go away. That sounds like a steep price, but Hurd received a whopping $12.2 million severance package upon resigning from HP. This is yet another story that illuminates everything that is wrong in the world of business. Hurd was in the middle of a sex scandal at HP, eventually cleared of sexual harassment charges but found to have abused his power and resigned from his position. That resignation came with a golden parachute that could cover the entirety of his birth state of New York. Now, in this scandal, he was the alleged harasser, not harassee. Then, less than a month later, he shows up as the co-president at Oracle, a key HP competitor. With bonuses, he stands to make over $11 million per year in his new position. Really? Too often, at the top executive levels, things like sex scandals prove to be beneficial, not harmful to, one's career. Rather than resign in disgrace, Hurd resigned and received a huge payout, then was immediately hired for a top executive role at a comparable tech company. Well, good for him, I guess. But I have to say that if I found myself in the same set of circumstances he navigated so successfully through, I rather think I would feel like I was stealing. From who? Everybody. Yesterday, Google announced that over 3 million businesses, schools, and government agencies are now using Google Apps. This is a critical trend to watch because the big computing advantage Microsoft continues to enjoy, and which many people thought Google could never take away, is the enterprise space. Well, while Microsoft is still dominating, Google is growing. Quickly. I'll admit that I'm a bit of a Luddite when it comes to productivity apps, sticking with Microsoft for the good old local computing goodness. But the sea change may be happening, and unless Microsoft can out-Google Google, either in addition to or in replacement of their past way of doing business, it could be real trouble. But hey, each day they lose market share, they also cede more and more of their evil empire status to Larry, Sergey, and the Googs. In the smartphone wars, still no sighting of the white iPhone 4. Now, I've been waiting to upgrade from my obsolete iPhone 3G, but they're really dragging their heels on this one. Is it really that much harder to manufacture a phone with white trim than with black? Something smells with this whole situation. Maybe they're trying to also fix the antenna problems? Or take pressure off the early iPhone 4 demand? But I just don't buy that making a white iPhone is this complex of a manufacturing issue. Uh, I've considered buying an Android phone out of frustration instead of waiting, but I'm just not feeling the heat from Android. I'm a Mac user. I want all of my stuff to work happily together. I also don't really know why I'm holding up for a white iPhone. It's not like I really like it that much better than the black. It's the old situation where I got an idea in my head, like the thought of having more of a minority product, and I'm now being stubborn about it. They better release that sucker soon, though, or I'm going to break down and buy a black one. Shifting over to consumer software, last weekend TechCrunch reported that Facebook is busy working on a mobile phone. While this rumor has popped up before, the heat around TechCrunch's insistence that it is true versus Facebook's denials make it more timely than ever. I mean, come on, is this really a surprise to anyone? The top software companies are all leaping into hardware with both feet, especially in the mobile marketplace. Personally, I think it's a great idea, and I'm not even much of a Facebook user. Mobile offers tantalizing possibilities for a very focused device optimized for social networking. 
Now, don't laugh, but I love the idea of the Microsoft Kin. And while that was a spectacular failure, Microsoft identified an essential problem space, optimize social communication with your networks via various media, voice, text, wall posting, email, the whole nine yards. Facebook should be doing this. The question is, will they get it right? My money says they don't. But if Facebook and Apple merged and the Apple industrial design team were doing this sucker, I think it could be huge. But hey, maybe Zuckerberg and friends will surprise us. Speaking of Facebook, here's one from John. Coming up in two weeks is the premiere of The Social Network, the movie telling the story, presumably fictionalized, of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. How weird is it there's a movie about a website? Then again, when the site makes its founder the world's youngest billionaire, it becomes all kinds of sexy. On an isn't it cool note, Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails fame worked on the soundtrack, and there's a nifty free five-track EP available in MP3. Nice, ambient, lush electronica. And what about video games? On Sunday, Sony's motion control system for the PS3 went on sale here in North America. Their answer to the groundbreaking technology of the Nintendo Wii, just released almost four full years later, will soon be joined by Microsoft's Kinetic system for the Xbox 360. Once the Wii caught on like wildfire with non-gamers, it was clear this technology would become standard for console gaming systems. While this shouldn't have much impact on the Sony-Microsoft imbroglio for console domination, the big question is, will the fact that Nintendo no longer has a unique interface technology further relegate the family-friendly gaming company to a more distant third place in the console wars? Only time will tell. Also today in PC gaming, Civilization V was released. The latest and greatest from the venerable, now 20-year-old franchise, Civ is the prototype for computer strategy gaming. In fact, I think it's time to end this segment and try it out for myself. That's all for this episode's It's News to Me. From our tastefully appointed Boston studio, this is Dirk Niemeyer, signing off. It's time to sit in your comfy chair with your favorite beverage. Here comes the bowl session. Hi, friends, and welcome to the bowl session. This is the segment where we bring in a few interesting people to participate in a roundtable discussion. Tonight, our topic is information visualization, and we've got a superb group of guests, Brian Stotts, Irene Ross, and Michael Dela. Let's get started by learning more about them and what they're up to. Brian, you started out as a research scientist. What did you originally want to be when you grew up, and how did that change over the years? Initially, I wanted to be an artist, so um, I had quite the talent as a, as a younger boy, and then eventually grew up to love the sciences and started out with organic chem, migrated to biology, genetics, then to bioinformatics, and then started getting to engineering software development, and then ended up uh, finding a knack for visualizing complex data sets uh, within bioinformatics and that grew into doing more kind of design and user experience and uh, with all that together kind of landed me to be more of a you know general data visualization guru so so was it really um, was it really an aptitude for it that gave you interest in infoviz or was it the type of problems you could solve and how you solve them or well what was interesting is that I was doing information visualization without even knowing there was such a field. Um, at the time when I started visualizing the human genome, 
I wasn't aware of any kind of you know general field to you know to visualize data out there and then um, I slowly started learning more and more and then and and found out that hey this is a niche that fits several of my uh, uh, skills and expertise that uh, that seem to go well together so along the way what was it that got you interested in deeply capturing and visualizing your life and that's most apparent you have your website at brianstots.com which you call um, live stats. Uh, what 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 took you down that road and, and made that an area of interest for you? Well, initially I was inspired by Nicholas Feltron and his Feltron report. I find it uh, fascinating that we're fast approaching a point where we can capture every moment of a person's life. You know, by by default, our memories are faulty, and mine especially. And so I like the idea of being able to revisit past experiences in greater detail than you can just get from a a uh, photograph and being a biologist I'm always interested in animal behavior you know what makes an animal tick or a more practical question I guess in this sense is um, what factors influence our health and our happiness so you know will we start out by collecting data and find out what these factors are so you've also done some interesting things in biosecurity talk to us about that a little bit so we understand a bit more about your background so the things that I can talk about are um, having a bioinformatics background made me a natural fit to, to um, look at visualizing you know, large and complex data sets. Um, it started in like cybersecurity where um, you may have um, mal you know, different strains of malware, so to speak, and people trying to, to uncover the, the origin or the sources of these malware through uh, phylogenetic methods. So here we're applying bio, biological methods to um, cybersecurity. And so that's kind of how cybersecurity and, and biosecurity merge. But also in terms of the biosecurity realm, uh, right now I'm working on a project in terms of um, uh, developing visualization tools for systems biology in terms of uh, uh, developing or, or designing synthetic organisms. Okay, thanks, Brian. Irene, share a little bit of your background with us, including how you found your way into InfoViz. Sure. Um, so I am a researcher, de research developer at the Visual Communication Lab at IBM Research, which is also part of the Center for Social Software. Uh, and I've been in this group for a couple of years now. And our work focuses on sort of creating visualization tools for the masses and exploring the way that visualization can both thrive in and impact social environments. And um, we've always been very excited about building visualization tools for lay users, and so that's one of the primary focuses that we try to maintain. Um, and more recently, uh, very related to the project I'll mention, we've been very interested in several spaces like text visualization and government transparency. My background specifically is in computer science. I graduated from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in 2006. and um, you know, I kind of stumbled into InfoViz, I think, uh, by surprise, I almost didn't really know the field existed. You know, it was a very computer science um, uh, rigorous program. And mm -hmm. some of my work uh, as an undergraduate was in the space of software engineering. And my undergrad thesis actually had a bit of work uh, in process modeling. And we used a very visual language to express that. And I was sort of fascinated by um, having to convert a very complex human process that was uh, related to um, 
a chemotherapy medical process and, and trying to visually represent that and some of the challenges that that entailed. And so I, I think as I inched closer and closer to um, my current job, I've tried to do as much as possible on the visual side of things. And in general, I've always had a tremendous love for design, art, and, and obviously software engineering. So it's kind of been a really great, great mix to be able to do both. Well, you mentioned earlier your project, and uh, it's really an exciting one. And um, unlike a lot of the things that I think we'll talk about um, today and in general on the show, it's something that's public and out there and people can get their hands on and, and play with, and that's Many Bills. Uh, tell us a little about Many Bills. What is it? What kind of impact has it um, or could it have? And what is the genesis of the project from idea to manifestation today? Sure. Um, and actually, before I talk about it, if, if that's okay with you, I just want to give a quick shout out to my wonderful teammate, Yannick Asagba, who uh, has been working with me on this project since day one. Sweet. Um, as, you, as you mentioned, it is a, a public project and uh, it's available for anybody to see at manybills.us. Uh, and I'll actually talk a little bit about why it is we're doing this to begin with, if that's okay. Yep. We, um, we became interested in government transparency around the 2008 election. Uh, and it was really a response to how popular text visualizations became on many eyes, uh, a previous project of ours. Um, and it was really just amazing for us to see how eager people were to visualize everything that every candidate said many, many times. Uh, and so, you know, even we were very, we were doing it too. And uh, so we thought, oh, you know, we should really continue with this this text uh, question because, it, you know, it's it was sort of an emerging space in, in focus community as it is. Um, and, you know, we were a little inspired ourselves, to be honest. So we thought, okay, this is a really great space for us to be in. You know, if anything, the government generates a ton of data and they now have this mandate to release it, why not take the opportunity? Um, and so at around the same time, we also held a symposium called Transparent Text, and that brought together a lot of really great folks from social sciences, visualization, and government transparency worlds. And we had this really great conversation with somebody from an organization called MapLite, and they told us about this bill called the Credit Card Act of 2009, hmm. uh, which is a really great bill. It protects consumers from predatory lending of credit card companies. I remember uh, that, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a great bill all around, but then it's got this one section that allows people to carry firearms into national parks. <laughs> and we thought, well, it would be great if we could come up with a quick way to see this sort of problem, um, even if it's not a problem. And that kind of extended to the bigger question of how do we help people, people like us, understand and become more interested in reading legislation. Um, and so we've since built this public service um, called Money Bills. And what it tries to do, it summarize and present the current bills that are proposed uh, and passed in the U.S. Congress from 2009 and on. And uh, we rely on existing data sources, uh, such as GovTrack.us, which is a really great source for this kind of data. And what we do is we use uh, advanced text classification techniques that allow us to understand what the contents of the bill are about. So, for example, the bill that I just mentioned uh, is called the Finance Bill, and that's a... Uh, a category assigned to it by the Congressional Research Service. But then that specific section about firearms is really more about public lands or maybe um, crime or whatever it is you, you prefer to call it. And so uh, what we wanted to do is be able to go and look at these individual sections and then say, well, this one is about finance, but then this one isn't. And so uh, around the same time, we were kind of interested in the metaphor of a map for text. Um, you know, what, what does it mean to really zoom in and out of text? And there's been you know a variety of really interesting projects that I've sort of thought about that too, um, and so one thing we try to do in the visualization is really give people a way to 
read the bill at different levels. So you can read the full text if you want to, but then you can also, you know, zoom out, quote unquote, to a point where you just have no text at all. You just have these um, these blocks of color with the color representing the section, uh, the topic. I'm sorry that we're assigning something, and mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of giving people a really quick way to look at the legislation. Um, and the last thing we did was actually uh, thinking about the upcoming election is add a visualization of Congress people's uh, activity. So you can go in and see what your congressman or any congressman has been working on and sort of what their areas of focus are. Um, and, you know, we're very excited about the project. We think it really has a huge potential to understand our government a little bit better. You know, the reality is legislation is still very hard, you know, with many bills and there's open Congress, which is a great project in this space, you know, before we were even in it. Uh, there's even a petition actually circulating around trying to get Congress people to read the bills before they vote on them, which we find funny. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of work that we still really want to do. We're interested in looking at a single bill more closely. Um, and we're actually, I'm very excited, but we've been working on some new algorithms to try and find sections like that firearm section, uh, things that don't really belong in bills. Uh, so I'm really excited about about that. That should be coming out very soon. And how has many bills been received by lawmakers? Are there any interesting stories or examples of it being used or advocated, especially by people our listeners might be familiar with? Um, it, you know, it's a really great question. We talked to um, a couple of people. One was uh, actually a lobbyist. And, you know, it was a really interesting conversation because we realized first how well staff they are and how wonderful their tools are in comparison to what the public has because uh, as we were showing them many bills they said oh but we have this and we have that and we have this and when we kind of explained a little bit about why it is we're doing what we're doing they said but what's wrong with that that's just kind of how the government works and so you know we realized that maybe uh you know that specific community probably wouldn't benefit from our tool um, and then, you know, another really great story that came out of many bills is we showed this to a um, uh, Nikki Tsongas, who is a representative for one of the districts in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, we uh, it was always it's always dangerous to be showing somebody their own profile, you know. <laughs> so we kind of, you know, we know what we were getting into. And we, you know, she has some really great legislation in the works. And there was one that was uh, specifically one bill that was very relevant to the Gulf um, oil spill. And I, you know, had shown her that and I said, oh, this is an example of, you know, this bill you've been working on. And she said, oh, actually this bill got merged into this whole other bill in the committee, but your site will never show that. And I realized, oh, that's true because that specific merging is a very human piece that just kind of happened in the committee discussion. So as a bill goes through the legislative process, so much happens in committees and a lot of that is just very human. And so I think one of the realizations as we've been building up the project is that there's this tremendous human element that, um, the, you know, to harness and to really be able to enrich the data with would, would take us so much further than anything we could do, you know, with automated methods. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And is there any kind of community out there around visualizing government data and information? So if people are inspired by many bills and they want to be part of evolving uh, here in the U.S., our democracy and through visualization, uh, where would you suggest they get started? Sure. Uh, there's actually a huge community, uh, the, the Gov2O community specifically, uh, you know, has been very inspiring to us too. Um, what I would start doing is really looking at organizations like the Sunlight Foundation. They've really... Uh, are I think one of the, the the better organizers of the community itself and they 
organize various contests such as Design for America and Code for America. And they really challenge people to create tools in very specific areas. You know, um, they've had categories such as, you know, help us uh, design a poster for how a bill becomes a law uh, and, you know, and some tasks that are a little harder. And so uh, I think that's a really great way to sort of do something uh, quicker with a, a data set that they put forth. So it's uh, always going to be very clear and probably very clean. Um, and just kind of get to know some of the other people in the community. Um, but there's also a lot of places to, to just get really good data. So data.gov is a, uh, a government site that uh, has been attempting to release data for public consumption. Uh, and, you know, there's some questions as to how useful the data is. And I think there's a lot of effort by the government to really try and improve the data itself. There's places like uh, GovTrack, which is a very powerful resource of very well-organized data. And, you know, if anything, um, now is a really great time to get involved because of the upcoming election. You know, we're excited to see what happens. I was just in the Visual Analytic Consortium, and there was a lot of conversation about um, how there's a lot of tools out there that, you know, will plot data. They'll put it on a map. They'll sort of create charts from it, especially in the crisis management space. But um, that's kind of where things stop. There's There's sort of a lack of conversation about it, and it's very hard for people to really be analyzing data. Uh, and, you know, we've been thinking about this idea of a, a user engagement pipeline, you know, which sort of starts with understanding. And that's where most of us are, including many bills. You know, we try to help people understand things. But then um, this idea of getting them to communicate and contribute, and then maybe even act on whatever it is they read um, is, is, you know, much more challenging. But I really hope that we can, as a community, push toward that. Thanks, Irene. Sure. Okay, Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my background um, is is in academic philosophy. I came late into the world of design, and um, and as uh, I, I sort of found my feet in the world of design, uh, I realized that uh, the analytical tools and critical thinking tools that I developed in my philosophical work um, had application. Uh, in the context of design. Mm. Um, my work um, was really focused uh, on, on certain kinds of issues in the history and philosophy of science, which specifically relate to um, standards of objectivity in various communities of practice. And um, uh, that said, um, you know, my, my evolving interest uh, as long as I've been in the design business um, is in you know design uh, as a tool uh, of objectivity um, which clearly I think um, you know has has relevance and resonance in the spectrum of, of fields you know that, that you're sort of capturing under the term information visualization mm -hmm. um, I'm involved in convening um, the the VizThink community uh, online at VizThink.com, which is a growing um, self-organizing community of visual thinkers who, you know, occupy a spectrum that runs um, from data visualization um, all the way over to graphic recording and visual facilitation of various kinds. It's clear that this is an emerging set of uh, professional disciplines, um, and many of them sort of developed ad hoc, not to take away from um, their their systematic nature in many cases and their rootedness in, in some really strong disciplines. Um, but I think it's still a very plastic set of professional uh, practices. Um, and 
I think the the language, um, the visual language, um, is one that's becoming increasingly critical uh, as as a literacy, um, not for just for people in design, but for people in business. And you know, as Irene was implying, um, certainly there's a huge uh, a huge part of this that has to do with politics. Um, you know, anything uh, that that is. Um, uh, has data attached to it these days um, is being expressed more often than not for for particularly lay people's purposes, but specialists as well, um, through a visual language of some sort or other. Um, and yet, you know, the, those visual languages are neither, you know, um, objective in in some pure sense um nor are they transparent necessarily but 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 uh are frameworks that that need to be interpreted um and part of participating in fully in things like government increasingly will depend on a person's ability to navigate um the visual expression of data were you ever uh, practicing i mean did you ever do infoviz as part of the design things that you were involved with yourself you know, the my really first experience with uh, with using any kind of information visualization myself um, was uh, in the course of creating uh, one of my last companies uh, when I started started Torch Partnership, which is a innovation consulting firm that I started um, about four and a half years ago. Um, you know, I started it on flip chart paper and literally spent, um, you know, two or three months in a room every day with uh, with two colleagues at the time and worked out on paper um, uh, with drawings and words and arrows and circles and all sorts of other visual primaries, you know, what it was we were doing or trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, I sort of I I don't know what led me to do it that way. I'd never been I've never been a note taker, um, and I've never had any particular facility with drawing. Um, but um, but something drove me to um, to communicate it that way. Partly because I, I needed um, I needed a language to talk uh, to my colleagues with. Um, I also tend to be a very conceptual person and and so when i when i just express myself in words uh it can get chunky and abstract pretty quick mm. um and and working on paper um and working uh with visual language i think maybe helped um ground what i was saying more um so it was kind of uh it was kind of anch anchoring for me in a good good discipline so with with VizThink, I know you have some some pretty exciting new new things in mind and different directions you're going to take. Is there anything you can talk with us about today? With, with the evolution of VizThink, um, uh, there there's a lot going on. I mean, really, what I'm hoping um, will, will take place uh, as we work on it in the next few months is that increasingly um, the VizThink community will will be Come um, much more, um, m much less essentially organized um, thing, and much more um, a, a creature of the community that it that it aims to represent, mm -hmm. um, and and so allow um, and and create uh, tools that it make make it easier for the community to to represent itself. Um, you know, I think I think the you know uh, the thing that we don't want uh, the visiting community. To 
community to be is is merely an aggregator. Um, but that said, um, I think that there's a place for um, the, the diversity of, of disciplines and, and and styles and approaches that that represent the spectrum of visual thinking to, um, to to come together and and to learn from each other and cross pollinate um, and, uh, and and sort out um, you know what's common what's specialized. Um, Part, partly in service of helping people who are new to the field, um, who have some of these tools um, and are looking for new professional uh, directions um, to, to open up to them um, the possibility of, of you know, interesting new forms of professional development because, you know, certainly as both Irene and Brian are pointing to, I mean, there's, there, there are more and more uh, jobs that are going to require um, skills uh, across the spectrum, particularly in data visualization, um, and uh, the ability to um, to not only uh, uh, de develop visualizations for complex data sets, but I mean, you know, the, there, there's a technical part to that, but there's also a really important semantic. Part to that, um, you know, uh, one one has to do a whole new kind of thinking about users, um, you know, in, in thinking about creating uh, accessible uh, and and to put it a certain way, democratic uh, forms of expression, uh, especially for rich and complex data, um, and especially for for the that kind of data which is connected to to important elements of public life like politics. You, know, you talked about the, the technical aspects and one of the things that surprised me in just getting ready for this show and inviting guests is a lot of the people who are doing the more interesting things in InfoViz these days, especially in digitally and on the computer, um, are people who are trained more as engineers as opposed to designers, even though they're, um, you know, uh, um, they're expressing their craft and their vision and their visualization and using design tools, their training as with both um, Brian and Irene is, is technical in nature. And that's, the, that's sort of an interesting dynamic, I thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, two, two of the people that popped into my head as you were saying that, you know, were, were are, are, are Ed Tufty, you know, who of course is a statistician, not a designer, um, and uh, and Hans Rosling, who again, you know, is, is a, a sort of statistician, um, and and clearly in in both of their cases, I mean, you know, uh, Tufty um, is a bit more of a guide and a curator, but um, but clearly um, someone like Rosling. Um, is is a pathbreaker um, as as the people in Irene's group um, uh, at IBM are in developing, you know, uh, visual uh, visual tools that not only uh, have um, a, a strong uh, data component, but are also um, being designed to be accessible, so that that data, uh, that, that data integration, uh, and the visualization of data and pattern finding and data and so on, um, it, it isn't just within the reach um, of rich and powerful people who can afford to to pay for the creation of this stuff. Um, so I think there's a really important aspect of of all of this that um, that has to do with the democratization the democratization of both this language and the tools 
of this language. Absolutely. And in that you mentioned um, Edward Tufte. And one of the things I wanted to talk about with, with all of you is it, it was a pretty exciting moment really for the whole field of information design when Tufte was uh, appointed by Obama, President Obama to help the United States government um, be sort of more transparently and effectively communicate with the populace. And I, I wanted to ask all of you, um, in what specific ways do you think that national governments could or should be using InfoViz to better serve their people? I think uh, if I can jump in on that, um, because we're, we were very excited when that happened too. Uh, there's actually a lot of discussion that's happening around uh, data.gov, for example, thinking about whether that data should be visualized or not by the government uh, or just released for the community to visualize it uh, by themselves. And, you know, I think it's a really interesting question because we are inherently mistrusting of um, our government. We're so much more used to being the watchdogs. And, you know, of course I can understand where that comes from. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I have this dream that we can all engage politically in a very constructive way and just support our arguments with factual data. And I think that's the engineer in me. And so um, I kind of wish that our government was able to translate some of the legislation and some of the rules that are constantly coming out that are very complex, uh, the impact of which is very unclear, I think, to uh, people like me and to other uh, folks that are outside the space. And, you know, I see periodically, you know, when the health care bill came out, there were some really great editorial pieces that, um, you know, the, very, the larger news organizations have done that tried to explain you know, what does it actually mean? I mean, there was this great piece in the Washington Post, you know, uh, it wasn't even really a visualization. You just kind of went in there and put some statistics about yourself and then you'd find out how the bill impacts you. And I think, you know, um, what I'd want to see is uh, not just the visualization of the data, but a way for people to then look at that those representations and say, what does this mean to me? How, you know, what is the budget cutting mean, you know, to my schools or to my public parks and so on and so forth. So, if they're able to do that, and then I think it's certainly worthwhile, um, you know, to put the effort because obviously it would be um, additional effort on the government's part. But uh, what I'd hate to see is just sort of very beautiful representations of the data that people can't really connect to and can't very can't really use in those conversations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sorry to jump in on that, but the the um, specifically around the healthcare. Stuff. Some at, at the time, uh, Dan Rome produced um, some some work, um, very much in the spirit of of a company uh, that does sort of plain language visual explanation. A company called Common Craft, um, and, and rather, you know, first of all, he he pointed out something that Irene referred to, which is that the actual legislation um, of of the healthcare reform bill, you know, was an impenetrable almost 1,500 pages with not a single graph or chart, um, <laughs> any kind of visual uh, handholds um, in the document. And, and you know, th this, this, you know, for, for all kinds of reasons, but, but the point that was, was trying to be made in a rather dramatic way was that, you know, no one can possibly understand uh, these kinds of documents, not even the people who act, who, whose desks that they notionally 
cross, right? Um, and 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 therefore, how how are ordinary people supposed to understand the issues that are represented in documents like this? I don't think that's a problem that that government or any one you know body or organization or group of smart people can solve. Um, and and so I don't think it's 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 merely incumbent uh, on government. Although I think there's a great uh, notion in in the appointment of of someone like Tufty to set a public standard um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and at least you know put put a, a new kind of norm out there about using this kind of language um, to the to, to the goal of transparency, as you say, um, supporting that you know I think becomes a responsibility of you know of citizens and all kinds of people um, who have something to add. Um, so I, I don't think we I don't think we can or should expect government to, to solve you know the transparency problem no matter what the tools available to them. There, there's a really interesting uh, issue in there um, that Brian I'm I'm interested in getting your perspective on first that Irene sort of teed up initially was you know should government be producing visualizations or should it simply be producing um, the data transparently for the community to visualize and as I was thinking about that and, and some of the things you were talking about Michael I, I thought about the the two different visualizations for the Obama healthcare plan and there was the um, the visualization that came from the Republican side that was very busy and cluttered and it said bureaucratic chaos. On the other hand, there was the one that came, I think, from the White House itself that was very clean and sleek um, with very muted colors and um, it looked calming and nice and um, effective. And so the, the, I guess the, the question I'm, I'm heading towards here is how how is InfoViz um, political and how in, in its political, I mean, does it start to cross over into branding and not so much just reporting on what's happening, but trying to change um, minds and influence people in what it's doing? Yeah, so a great thing about that, Dirk, is and it, this is a book that's dying be, to be made, is How to Lie with Visualizations. I mean, kind of <laughs> the more modern take on that of, you know, how to lie with statistics, you know, that's the kind of uh, back and forth that I saw going on, you know, with that healthcare thing. Um and uh, you know, the, there's tons of examples out there of, of not sort of not necessarily lying, but misleading. Um, there was also a, a a chart that that was produced for the BP oil spill recently. I don't know if you recall that, where they exaggerated the um, uh, the amount of oil that they've collect that they were recollecting. Mm. And so, a lot of a lot of times, you know, you, you can say that some of these mis uh, uh, these over-exaggerations or misleadings are unintentional or or um, not properly designed. Versus, then there's that you know the, you know probably a smaller set of situations where they're intentionally misleading. But um, it's an interesting uh, section there that I think would be be worth a book or uh, worth diving into. But I want to tie in kind of what Michael and Irene was saying is in terms of you know who should you know if if one body as Michael uh, 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 says, that shouldn't there should not be a one body that you know that uh, does the visualization of data or you know holds uh, you know is the keeper of the data and produces the visualizations and and so I agree with that and kind of Irene was saying you know we starting to have these we we have these tools out now like Mini Eyes and now we have Tableau Public 
and there's you know additional tools out there now that are making it available to anyone to take any kind of data, whether it's um, political or not, and explore it and interact with it. And I think um, what Irene was saying is that the one of the most important features that we have now with the the tools on the web is being able to interact with visualizations rather than just being a static poster and being able to explore and and, and pl play what ifs and so forth. I think it's a real powerful uh, uh, opportunity we have uh, with the with these latest tools to to dig deeper into like uh, data that's put out uh, you know by the government or, or anyone for that matter such as you know BP. Yeah, and I think uh, I just wanted to jump in on uh, your, your former question. Um, I think part of why it's so important for us to bring information visualization and information design into academic curriculums uh, much sooner than, than it is brought now uh, is that exact point of it becoming so popular and so frequently utilized now by advertising campaigns. I don't know if anybody, anyone had seen the Fort Fusion charts, they were kind of a joke, you know, there were these 3D neon colored bar charts, you know, they were all <laughs> over the place and we all kind of laughed about it, but it, and, you know, it, it's premonition a little bit because, you know, the same way that we teach our children to realize when you're watching TV, this is the show and this is the advertising and to be able to take those specific pieces with a grain of salt, we have to be able to teach, uh, you know, our children and, um, you know, even folks in college, I mean, the reality is that unless you're in a field that requires, you know, some kind of statistical knowledge right now, you're really not going to get exposed to uh, infographics or information visualization uh, and, and the literacy of it. And so, you know, I, I feel like I keep making this argument to anybody who will listen, but um, it would be so great for us to, to be able to teach people uh, about sort of what is the truth and what isn't and what is meaningful and what isn't. And Tufti's books are great for that because they do point out um, some of these inconsistencies, but they're just getting more and more prevalent. And, and that is something that I find concerning as I'm sure a lot uh, of folks in the community do. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. I mean, you know, the learning, um, learning is something certainly uh, that needs to be addressed, um, you know, at, at the young ages, but but all through the age spectrum, because again, you know, the the, the paradox of of visual language and you know the the growing prolif pro proliferation of a very technical visual expression is that you know while it's it's you know visually readable and has the you know, ha has this illusion in a way of transparency. Um, it's it's not transparent. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, semantic um, structure embedded uh, in the way in which we visualize information. And if you don't have critical tools for interpreting um, visual data, as with any data, um, then you you lack the literacy with which to really parse in in a critical way uh, th this data and and I think you know that that the exciting thing um, that that we're justifiably excited about um, is all of these amazing tools that make it possible to take you know imponderable uh, kinds of of you know sort of cognitively intractable data like you know 
literally huge databases of numbers and and so on and and use these tools um, to, to make sense of that, that data in certain ways and find patterns in that data and so on and so on but um, but the the ability um, to to make sense uh, of that stuff um, you know isn't isn't something that's native uh, to us it's something we, we need to learn and, and I think I think it, it, it it's um, it's an important thing that 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 um, strategies for addressing those learning gaps uh, aren't aren't emerging nearly as fast as the technologies uh, are at this point so what I mean what would the Venn diagram for this look like I mean is it data plus design plus critical thinking like because uh, we're talking about you know it can't it's can't be totally pinned down and at a high level what are the what are the important parts of it I mean how would someone starting out in their career or even starting over become an expert in infoviz what what are they focusing on what skills do they need there's there's a couple approaches I mean one if there's a particular domain that someone's interested in say politics or or biology uh, then you know those you know those particular domains have you know their set of data and complex issues that infoviz is well suited for so you can either come at it from the, the domain perspective or 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 go under it as you know straight at it as a formal science so to speak such as if you wanted formal training perhaps um, you could go to uh, University of Maryland and study under Ben Schneiderman or perhaps the University of uh, uh, Mass Lowell under George Gernstein, you know, but I, informally there's, you know, as as we know, there's a tremendous amount of books, Tufty books being, uh, uh, you know, the exemplar of books to, to go to. But, you know, however, you know, having recommended, you know, those are the kind of the things that I would recommend someone wanting to get into the field. Um, above all, I think it's it's about getting your hands dirty, picking up your you know your favorite text editor and you know start chomping some code or dive into Adobe Illustrator and doing some design or just picking up a pencil paper and start sketching on a napkin but mm -hmm. I think the 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 the, uh, the theme here is just practice 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 mm -hmm. and and uh, you know everyone starts somewhere and there's you know different avenues you go either the formal route informal or you know through you know the domain you may have a domain that you're particularly interested in Irene, how would you mentor someone if someone came to you and said, I want to do the next many bills, you know, they're a high school senior or something, where, where would you take them? Where would you guide them? Sure. Um, there's, you know, I, I had my own journey into the field very recently. So it's kind of interesting because I was thinking back on everything I had to do, you know, and I, and I started from some of the standard, you know, great blogs like InfoStetics and Flowing Data that really do a great job cataloging some of the great work out there. And I find it very inspiring. Uh, and of course, I went through all the Tufty books, and there's a few others. Uh, but I, I kind of have to agree that you know you really just have to sit down and, and write some code. You know, I, I can't highlight the importance of frameworks such as processing. Uh, the reality is, it really can't get any simpler uh, for somebody who's not used to coding to try and code something. Uh, the API is just so so simple, uh, and you know it is a little bit hard because in the end you're going to need to do some math, and you so you sort of have to have the interest and the inclination towards uh, towards doing that, and so, you know, some very basic statistics. Uh, you know, although far less uh, gorgeous, is actually going to really go a long way. Um, 
and you know, and I would also sort of think about, you know, um, I think a lot it becomes easier for people to look at sort of their own personal reflection, uh, you know, sort of whether it be uh, following your specific life or whether finding data sets about your own life. And, you know, I find that sometimes people will do that not even really realizing that they're doing info viz, you know, so many people create wordles. Do they think that they're making a visualization? Maybe not. They're just thinking, oh, this, I'm just expressing myself and, mm -hmm. you know, making this artifact about my life. And so I think maybe that's a great angle for people that, uh, you know, don't necessarily know, you know, that they want to focus on biology or focus on uh, sort of one of these more uh, very complex fields. I really admire for some of the work they're producing. Uh, but, you know, even look around your life, you know, uh, what it is that you have uh, in your freezer. You know, somebody visualized that on many eyes, and that was one of our <laughs> sort of uh, favorite examples. And, you know, and just kind of go from there and see what it is you can you can do. You know, it's 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 all like sketching. It's, you know, if it, as if you were to pick up some markers. It's just a little bit more time-consuming and complicated. <laughs> so... Now we we talked about Edward Tufte a little bit earlier, and he and Richard Saul Werman are you know generally considered in sort of the popular press outside of the information design field as the leaders of the field, and of course even within the field they're among the leaders. Um, but if if we look at most of the paragons of the field, I mean they're they're notably in the winner of their careers, and, and I'm interested from from each of you who are the younger or mid career talents. Um, who, who really, you know, designers with a specialization in InfoViz um, that we should know about and look to for vision ins inspiration. Two that occurred to me, um, Brian mentioned one of them earlier, um, Nick Felton, who, who you know, is not, you know, a, a strong data visualizer, visualizer in, in the computational sense. Um, nonetheless, um, you know, is somebody who's emerged um, as, as, uh, as an exemplar for applying um, information visualization frameworks to places where we, we don't necessarily expect them. Mm. Um, this idea of producing an annual report on one's life, um, you know, is, is, it turns out, you know, much more compelling than, than that sounds on paper. Um, so I think, I think he, uh, is, is very interesting. Um, and, and the other guy who occurred to me, um, you know, I know mostly as a curator, um, is Manuel Lima, who runs, um, the, the blog, uh, visualcomplexity.com. And I know Manuel's working on a book, um, at, at the moment about, um, visualizing complex information. Um, but those are two people who I think, you know, throw throw an interesting and powerful lens on some of the th stuff that's happening. Uh, I wanted to throw in uh, the work of Jared Thorpe, who I really, really admire and enjoy. He had some really great, um, He does. he's done a lot of very great processing uh, sketches that, you know, he's been releasing to the community and they can learn so much from uh, you know, I love reading his code. It's very nerdy. And uh, he even did this really great piece about sort of some of the New York Times data that was uh, released, just helping you look at sort of searches and trends of words. And you can, you know, put things such as, you know, oil in Afghanistan and just kind of look at how they've been changing over time. And then so many times it happens to really fit with the news and, and the cycles of what it is we're talking about uh, in the country and in the world. So, um, in general, his work is just very beautiful, and I find that he innovates a lot in, in that space. So. Yeah, I would mention, I'll throw in um, uh, Martin Wattenberg, which you know I reign very well. 
uh, who's who's now uh, has his own um, his own gig that he started. Uh, Jeff here and Mike Bostock from uh, the Stanford Visualization Group. Um, they're the ones that uh, have released the Protoviz web, uh, WebKit. Mm. They've also worked on the uh, Profuse library and the and the Flare library. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of a toolkit um, to to make it really easy and simple to visualize uh, data, but yet com complex enough to to allow you to be flexible and create any anything your imagination can develop. I think Protoviz is, is a really great tool, and uh, they're doing some good things in that group. That I'm looking forward to seeing what they um, what they have to release um, this year, which apparently they they're working on their paper uh, as we speak. So to wrap things up, um, one final question for all of you: uh, What are some, at least one, or maybe more, truly exciting visualizations that each of you have seen recently? And take that whatever direction you want. It can be things that are inspiring or insightful. Um, technically wild, but what's what's something that you find really exciting and want to share with our listeners? Uh, I think I happen to find a lot of um, inspiration in the space of crisis management and some of the great work that people like OpenStreetMap have done in Haiti. Um, you know, I think that's where we're able to have the most impact. Of course, there's so much work to be done uh, completely outside of InfoViz um, when things like that happen, but uh, I also feel like that's where our skills could really come in handy um, and to be able to work with those folks and realize how understaffed and under-resourced they are. Um, I really hope that that's one place that we can really help out. Yeah, I um, I was going to mention something more, more general than a particular visualization, which was um, uh, Stamen uh, out of San Francisco, who I think um, were were involved in the design of the, uh, the OpenStreetMap application uh, for for the Haiti application specifically, um, but but the one that I did have in mind to share was just from uh, the Money blog uh, um, on the New York Times, uh, or, or I think this is from the, uh, the Bucks blog of Carl Richards, which is just a series of napkin sketches um, that are meant to explain uh, you know fundamental concepts of personal finance, mm -hmm. um, and. I think you know it's really simple stuff, but it's really powerful and and relevant stuff at the street level. Um, and I find I find that kind of application of visual thinking particularly powerful. Yeah, I'd have to I'd I'd have to also uh, I was going to mention statement design as well. They they do some I'm very impressed with um, not only their technical feats but you know their design chops as well. Um, but I know, I know. Also, I know I've plugged it several times now. But uh, Protoviz is is something that I'm just really keen on um, over the past uh, year and a half, uh, as it allows me to really um, uh, learn as as a coder, as as I dig into the you know the depths of of, of the library, and also uh, uh, challenge my design skills in terms of how to implement them. And and the the library is very expressive and allowing me to uh, to create new things and I'm just I'm very excited about it so I just in terms of you know um, you know something technically inspiring I'd have to say that uh, Protoviz uh, uh, fits the bill well thanks so much Brian Irene Michael this has been a great bull session thank you Dirk thank you thanks Dirk thanks everybody 
John, I, I think these bull sessions are going to be really good segments. Yeah, I agree. When when you get a lot of smart people in a room uh, like we just did, it, it really opens up uh, some doors to uh, uh, exploring a topic like uh, InfoViz. And I, I think it's really interesting how people's uh, viewpoints can differ uh, just on, on even in this in this field of expertise, which would seems uh, would seem very homogenous, but there are uh, three very different perspectives on it, and I, I thought that was uh, pretty exciting. You know, one of the things I think is going to be really fun with hosting the show is picking the guests. You know, today we had Irene on, who it was the first time I met her, and and she's really interesting and terrific. And Brian, of course, works with us at the studio on a fairly regular basis, so we know him. And uh, Michael's an old buddy, and I mean, I could kick back with him and uh, have a night-long conversation over a pint anytime. Uh, and they, you know, brought a really nice cross-section of experience and perspective. I, I just w- wish we had all had more time together. But let's, you know, why don't we change gears a little bit and talk about um, some of the interesting things that were unearthed during that session? Because there, there were one or two things in particular that I, I wish there had been more time for, or maybe that we had delved into more deeply. Uh, one of the things I, I found really interesting once I started to think about it and wrap my mind around it is the role and use of InfoViz. Um, I, I mean, like most people in the industry, or most might be too strong, but like a lot of people, I came to know InfoViz largely through the eyes of Edward Tufte and his course and his books. And he has a very idealized perspective. It's one of an exemplar showing how InfoViz can be incredibly powerful, um, providing tools, very understandable tools that you can harness and understand and unleash the power of InfoViz. And with that in how he presents it and what it is, implicitly there's an assumption of truth and even goodness in the process and the tools and the outcome. There's a real idealism there. But in reality, and we, we talked about some examples on the show, InfoViz can be used any way someone wants. It can be meaningless. It can be destructive. It can be manipulative in ways that serve really nefarious ends. And I'm concerned, or at least for the first time thinking about, as those tools are more widespread and as more people are understanding the power and potential um, that we're going to be seeing more and more of that sort of negative manipulations of data and information. So the questions that I'm thinking about really is when you boil it down, how is InfoViz really different than any other marketing communication? But previously, I, I guess I just always thought of them as different things. But as, as we had this conversation and thought about examples, now I'm starting to wonder if there are differences um, or if they're just sort of similar on the same spectrum, but manifesting a little bit differently. And, you know, I think typically people think of InfoViz as something that's more data driven. Uh, But I can remember early in my career when I was a young creative writing copy for brochures or designing brochures, they were telling very data driven stories, like the the features and benefits, how we were communicating them. uh, It was all about data, but just being being communicated in a slightly different way. So I don't know that saying InfoViz is data-driven really is is enough. Um, so if data is not the unique province of InfoViz, uh, you know, bending data in various ways, that, that shows up in every type of Marcom. So I, I guess the, the question that I'm driving here towards in, in perhaps a circuitous way is how are these things fitting together? Is InfoViz ultimately simply a Marcom tactic? Is it a way to convince people to do something you want them to do? Is it is that all it is? Is it that far removed from the sort of, uh, you know, 
rose-colored idealism that, that Tufty and, and others teach us? Well, first I want to touch on briefly the, uh, the uh, Tufty reference, uh, because one thing he does very well in his books is he, he not only shows that ideal state, which we can talk about in a minute, but he also shows a lot of failures of information visualization. Um, which, which essentially uh, uh, are uh, infoviz that didn't succeed in doing what it's supposed to do, which in, in this case we're talking about reveal the truth of a situation. And I'm thinking specifically about the, the Challenger disaster where uh, engineers showed the, uh, some of the data they had on hand regarding launching rockets in a, uh, in a cold environment and it's rather than show the whole data set, they only showed part of it. Um, and they were unable to convince their colleagues from another uh, company that they shouldn't launch. And we all know what happened as a result of that. So, John, that, that's a good example, but that that's a failure of competence, not a failure of intent, right? And so that's that's it's a great example. But what I'm concerned about are failures of intent are you know, again, to the ch using the challenger as an example, Tufty tends to talk about people trying to do the right thing in a certain way. But we're more and more seeing infoviz used by people who are uh, trying to deceive or do the wrong thing. And how I don't know how does that or does that change the discipline? Well, I I think the point uh, that I was driving to there is that, um, and one that Tufty makes very well is that if the entire data set is available then you really can't manipulate um, people's opinions about it uh, in a particular direction. So hearkening uh, back to that Challenger example, the entire data set does show that launching in cold weather is a bad idea. Uh, just like if you were trying to manipulate uh, a data set and you you only showed part of the data, that's that's how manipulation is done. You only show the slice you want to show. Um, yeah, I, yeah, but I mean, I, I don't open Illustrator much anymore, but I could show that whole data set in a way that obfuscated the risk. I mean, th just showing all the data, I don't think is enough because that data can be presented in a way that is is obscuring the truth. Well, I think, yeah, that's definitely, I mean, it could be a problem if, if your intent is um, uh, malfeasance or, you know, something that's uh, improper. The other thing to uh, to keep in mind on on the infoviz uh, side of things is we're talking about mostly static uh, graphics uh, when we're talking about just showing uh, sort of a freeze frame of data. If the data is live, that adds another dimension that's very difficult to manipulate. Um, and I was thinking about this earlier that if you tried to say manipulate the map of the market, right, and uh, tried to show uh, that stocks were doing well if they weren't, or vice versa. Um, that manipulation will be shown um, once that data changes. So when you're just showing a slice of data and you take a snapshot, you can you can uh, manipulate it a little more easily. But if your data is continuous uh, over time, it becomes a lot more difficult to hide uh, um, the truth of it uh, as as uh, the data cycles through. Well, I, I think it depends. You know, with with data sets and using the market as an example, uh, there's a a ton of data. I mean, and anyone who's trying to communicate something about the the health or or lack thereof of the market, 
they have more data points to pick from than they can possibly display. And so it ultimately, at, at that level, at that volume of data, it does become a question of data choice. And I, I believe that I could easily fool people to thinking the market was something other than it is by by selectively choosing data that isn't necessarily uh, relevant or that's intentionally chosen to appear to tell a coherent story when in fact it, it's telling a very inaccurate one. Hmm. Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, you, you raise a good point there. Uh, ultimately, I, I guess I come down on the side of if, if the data feed is available and it's uh, unmanipulated, then uh, the chances are good that your interpretation won't be the only one. Um, so, so that's what I'm hoping for, uh, meaning that um, if the data is available, say government data, market data, scientific data, um, and one information visualization is uh, um, used to manipulate it in a way that's improper, then there will at least be other opportunities to view that data uh, in, in a way that's more truthful. So. Uh, my hope is that the data remains accessible. Uh, once once it once it becomes inaccessible, then I think we're talking about something entirely different. Hmm. Okay. I, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that gets to the heart of the question, but I think I think I hear what you're saying. Um, I mean, so cir circling back, how I mean, how do you think InfoViz as a means of communication is different or similar to other? media through which marketing communication occurs and is it is it just part of that same soup or is it somewhat somehow um inherently different and again my my, my contention is um from from spending time with with people like uh tufty and Werman, i i think that their perspective on it is one it, it appears to be one that's very um idealized and that infoviz is somehow different is somehow that there, 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 there's an idealism there, um, but I'm I'm starting to question that and wonder if it's if it's just, you know um, sort of same shit different day as any other type of of marketing communication. So I would probably agree with you uh, to some extent there. I I think information visualization is is uh, a visual language, obviously, and like all language, it can be used for. Uh, a variety of purposes based on uh, what the uh, uh, the person who's displaying that information or that visualization what what their purpose is. Um, so ultimately, it's 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 a tool and 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 a uh, a piece of language that can be used to communicate. And then you know obviously you have your choices in terms of what it is you're communicating and what the story is behind it and who you're communicating to. Mm -hmm. um, it just happens right now that it's it's uh, somewhat uh, more, uh, let's just say, highbrow uh, kind of communication. So maybe uh, um, you know the the thinkers who have who have uh, pioneered the field have uh, a particularly idealized way of looking at it, um, and that could have more to do with them. As uh, I mean, Tufty is an academic. Uh, and, and 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 I think he might uh, care just as much about the beauty and the uh, um, the history of the information visualizations as as much as anything else. Um, so I think that that idealism might be uh, a reflection of the people 
who um, who are leading the field right now, uh, rather than a reflection of information visualization uh, in a general sense. Fair enough. Fair enough. And speaking of people um, leading the field, what, one of the folks who were mentioned by both Brian and Michael was Nick Feltron and the Feltron report. And of course, our business partner, Yuhan, has a copy of the 2009 one. Have, have you gotten your hands on that? I haven't yet. That, that will be something I'll be bothering Yuhan about tomorrow. Yeah, go go in, go in and, and pick it up. It's 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 an incredible piece of work. Unfortunately, the 2009 is sold out, but hopefully people can um, get ahead of the curve and get his 2010 because it, not only is it really interesting in how it's visualizing the the data of his life, but the the quality as any really wonderful print piece um, tends to be is just it's it's lush. You hold it in your hands, um, you know, it's and it's um, the the tactile, the feel. Um, it's, it's really great. It's, 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 it's truly a special document. And I know the 2009 was selling for 30 bucks. I don't know what the 2010 is going to look like in form factor, what that's going to sell for. But, uh, Nick Feltron is definitely a name to keep, keep your eye on. And the Feltron report should, should probably be a must buy for, for people in the industry. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like that's going on my Amazon wish list. Very, very shortly. Well, I don't think he's—I don't think he's on Amazon just yet. But uh, Feltron.com is—I know you can get it there. All right, sounds good. Good. Well, InfoViz, I, I think it made for a very compelling topic. I think, I mean, we could have even done a show that was a little more focused of just the visualization of uh, government, which Irene, you know, we, we plumbed that pretty nicely with her or the visualization of health. And I, we could have got a lot more deep into that, but we just didn't get around to it with, with Brian. We, we had a lot of things we were talking about, but it, it's a great topic. And what I love about it is how it raises really broad questions about art, about design, about communication, about science, uh, there's there's just a lot going out there. So uh, going on there. So for people who aren't so familiar with InfoViz, and this show is the first time that you're kind of hearing about this as a a field, as a as a real um, specific area of thought, definitely something to look more into. And regardless of sort of what side of the brain you you function from or what your interests are, there's a lot of good stuff here to to learn. All right, John, that's going to wrap us up for this episode of the Digital Life. Now, usually at the end of the episode, uh, we'd be talking about what we're going to do on the next show. However, this is episode one, and it's really a prototype. We're just trying this all out. We have a pretty good idea of what we're going to do. But even going through this process, we're learning a lot, making some changes. And what we're planning to do is finish this show, which we should do in the next 24 hours, get it up there on iTunes, get people listening to it, but then use this show to help us set up the future shows and figure out what the topics will be. Uh, we've already got a, a list of guests that I think are going to be really exciting. We get those people kind of organized and slotted in. And then sometime in October, we'll we'll start producing. And the plan is to produce on a really regular um, publishing schedule. I'm not going to commit to frequency just yet, but it should be pretty regular. And uh, once once that gets started, we're we're going to keep rolling. And I don't, this is this is a lot of fun. I'm I'm pretty excited about it, John. How about you? Oh yeah, yeah. This is. Uh... Definitely something that uh, has has made me pretty happy over the past uh, couple couple weeks as we've been bringing this together. And uh, as you know, the the audio world is one that I enjoy living in. So as the uh, as the show producer here, uh, messing around with all the waveforms and getting this together in MP3 format to put on iTunes, uh, it's. Uh, Reminds me of my days when I was uh, sitting up late at night uh, editing tunes for my uh, for one of my bands. So 
it's uh, bringing back some really good memories. And nostalgia is always a good thing. Definitely. Well, any final words for our listeners? Yeah. Um, we, we have a lot of great stuff planned and, and I know that we've already got some dynamite guests lined up. Uh, and we really are just getting started. This this is going to be uh, a playground here, and, and I think you're going to be really uh, excited to come along for the ride. So uh, if you haven't already, subscribe to that RSS feed um, and, and get ready to uh, hop on board the digital life. Excellent. All right, folks. Well, thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Dirk Niemeyer for Jonathan Follett, and we're living the digital life. So long. So long.